Hello and welcome to this Energy Aspects podcast where we're going to be talking about the November OPEC Plus meeting and the group's spare capacity. I'm Richard Bronze, Head of Geopolitics, and I'm joined by Amrita Sen, our Director of Research. Amrita, I really want to dive straight in. Um, OPEC Plus clearly rejected uh, the mounting political pressure from the US and elsewhere to add more supply than it already plans, the 400,000 barrel a day quota increase every month. What did you make of that decision and just the tone of the meeting itself? I think, like you said, Rich, I think the for, for me personally, more than the decision, it was the press conference that really stood out. The decision, we've been saying this, um, and not just for this meeting, even the prior meeting, OPEC Plus have been very consistent in their messaging. They are concerned about a few things, such as stock bills in 2022, particularly in Q1 of uh, every year we get stock bills. So they're worried about potentially prices coming off then. They're worried about the winter and rising COVID cases. We've seen some instances, be it in China, be it in Russia. Um, And about balances, I think it is always worth bearing in mind that, look, our balances are far more constructive. We have small draws next year. It doesn't matter what they are, what our balances are, or even what the market believes. It only matters what OPEC plus believe what the balances are, and they are using the secretariat's numbers. On that basis, it makes it very, very hard for them to front load any of the increases because they expect the market to be in surplus next year. So they have been very consistent on that rationale. So the number or the rollover of the 400,000 barrels per day Uh, or rather ratifying that that's what they're going to do is not a surprise to me. But the way the press conference was conducted yesterday, um, it was so carefully crafted. It was a real comprehensive rebuttal of all the demands, the criticisms of OPEC Plus. And there's been a lot over the last few weeks, obviously in the lead up to COP26, but even prior to that, lots of demand by the US, uh, key consumers, China, Japan, India, asking OPEC Plus to add more barrels. And what was really, really interesting is that it wasn't just Prince Abdulaziz uh, talking about what happened and why the decision was what it was. It was, he pretty much had ministers from both OPEC and non-OPEC member countries of of the OPEC plus group. So it wasn't just Novak or Mazrui. We had Azerbaijan, Nigeria, Mexico. Um, I'm still confused as to, you know, why Mexico is there, given the fact that (laughs) they aren't even a part of uh, this current deal. But it was such a show of unanimity saying this was a unanimous decision. We are sticking to this output output schedule because this is about achieving stability in the market. He, as a group, they really talked about the reason they're doing this is because they want to take care of consumers as well. Yes, the acknowledged prices are high. Yes, it has been, and it is definitely painful for consumers, but at the same time, look at what gas is doing, look at what coal is doing. Oil has done nothing in terms of price increases in comparison. So I think that was that really, really stood out to me. The second point, um, a very subtle one, but really given all the ministers that came out uh, supporting the decision and the way they articulated it was saying, you know what, nobody out of outside of OPEC Plus can tell the group what to do, even if they're sitting in the Oval Office. So it was it was really, really well done in that sense. And the final point, and this is somewhat of a medium term point that Prince Abdulaziz made, which was the fact that he actually mentions 
that during the it was a 70 minute long press conference i mean that in itself was noteworthy that the oil industry needs market signals to invest and that does stand out because right now you would argue that the market is broken in some ways this minister in particular has a long institutional memory of past policy missteps by consumer countries in the 1970s um, and i think what he is really trying to say is that you can't have these two goals of starving the global economy literally from the fuel that it needs to grow because you are talking about we need to grow in the near term coming out of COVID, but at the same time in the medium term saying we're not going to need fossil fuels at all, right? And of, of course, that's led to a lot of talks around the SPR and one of the big reasons why prices fell, even though OPEC or decided to just increase production or quotas, I should say, by 400,000, a lot of people were expecting that they would cave to US pressure. But now everybody's talking about the SPR, but that's very much what Abdulaziz is trying to say, that these are market distortions. If you do an SPR at $80 crude and natural gas is at $160, what? Do, does the US do it again at 90? Does the do, US do it again at 100? So these are not the right market signals to send. You know, the, OPEC plus need to be a part of the debate when it comes to transition. And equally, at the same time, it doesn't give other countries the right to dictate what OPEC plus should do. But again, I mean, those were my kind of key takeaways. What did you think of uh, the press conference? I mean, as you said, it was it was certainly comprehensive, you know, after two months where the group just quietly and quickly uh, stuck to their existing schedule, didn't bother sp taking questions from journalists. They came out with this very, very extended um, articulation of this is where we stand. This is why those who are telling us to act differently are, are misguided. And and I think that really does throw the issue back to the Biden administration to consumers about how they want to respond. But probably the piece um, that stood out for me was actually in uh, in Prince Abdulaziz's response to some of the journalist questions um, when he eventually finished finished his his prepared remarks. Uh, and he twice talked about sovereignty. You know, he he said and he acknowledged uh, very openly that if consumers want to use their SPR uh, to to respond to market conditions, that was their sovereign decision. He wasn't going to tell them how uh, they should or shouldn't use those levers available to them. But he also used that same term to explain why um, there was no mechanism for countries that are able to produce above their quota to make up for and overproduce because some countries are falling short of their quota levels. And this was something that I think there was speculation, you know, in the build up to the meeting that maybe this would be some kind of get out of how the group would add supply without changing the quota system officially. I think that was always mistaken, but he didn't just uh, gently rebut that. He was very firm in saying, you know, it is not the place of any one OPEC plus producer to assume or, or say what anyone else will be able to produce in the future um, and certainly not to take that quota. And I think that really spoke to the very heart of the, the way that OPEC plus is meant to work as a group of producing nations. It's a, you know, it's an organization that can only take decisions with consensus. And even though there are clearly some big hitters, the major producers, and they dominate the headlines, the point here was that doesn't mean or um, that, that they can just simply take market share or take quota from other countries that maybe aren't 
uh, finding it as easy to raise production. And I think that becomes really important as we head into next year um, and as the group does collectively fall further and further behind on those quota increases in our view. And I think this actually raises a very important point, perhaps the most important point in the market right now, because inventories are very, very low everywhere in the world. You know, our latest measures show that at the end of October, global crude stocks were 35 million barrels lower than October 2019. So we've absolutely exhausted all the buildup that we had last year. So in a way, SPRs are really the only option available for consumer countries uh, to mitigate any of the kind of price increases, even though it would be a very, very short term um, solution and, and uh, doesn't solve the underlying problem, which is basically we need more investment and supplies. But the critical thing is ultimately down to how much can OPEC plus bring back. And this raises the question of spare capacity because one of the biggest drivers for OPEC secretariats builds next year um, in their balances is that clearly they are assuming that all the OPEC plus member countries can produce at the level that, you know, at least on paper they claim uh, is their productive capacity. We've obviously already seen different. And this is one of the uh, pressures that I guess even the US is putting on them saying, well, you talk about raising 400,000 barrels per day every month, or you've, you've promised that. But the reality is the actual amount of barrels hitting the market isn't even that much. Now, this is something that it's been interesting because you remember this when OPEC moved to phase three, of their kind of current deal. Uh, there are three phases. Well, you could argue there were sub phases in between, but yeah, overall <laughs> the three phases, they were bringing back 5.8 million barrels per day. And we have always said that they don't have that 5.8 million barrels per day, but the market really hung on to that number and said, no, it's going to be 5.8. We're going to be oversupplied. We went through this summer, everybody talking about how oversupplied 2022 is going to be. But suddenly that narrative has shifted because finally, I think everybody is coming around to the view we've had for a long time with all the analysis we've done, that there isn't that 5.8. So what is really left and, and how much is going to come back this year and then probably more importantly for next year? Completely. And I think, you know, this is a, a story that has been gathering momentum for a long time, but perhaps is only really getting noticed now. So over the second half of this year, the group raises quotas gradually by 2 million barrels a day, but we estimate that the actual production increase is 1.5 million barrels a day. So it kind of does three quarters of what it collectively said, but there's some there's some kind of uh, details underneath that. But it's really when we get into next year that the problems are, uh, amplify because it's the group then has this 3.8 million barrels a day of quota increases it's planning to do over January to September. We think it starts the year already a million barrels a day below the quota level. So the actual production is already a million short. But then we also think the group as a whole has only got 3.4 million barrels a day of spare capacity left. So even if it brought online and that's available spare capacity, I should say. So this excludes Iran, it excludes kind of Venezuela because of sanctions. But the countries that in theory could pump more, in our view, have about 3.4 million barrels a day of capacity. Quotas are meant to increase by 3.8 million barrels a day. So even just on that very simple group level analysis, 
you're going to fall further short um, of the level that, that would, you know, that the, the headline quota increases would suggest. But isn't the point that, and you've mentioned this, is that group level is one thing, but then when you break it down at the country level, that's when it becomes even more problematic because this isn't the mechanism this time around. It isn't as simple as saying, okay, Nigeria, you can't produce the oil, so therefore UAE, you can take that share. Absolutely. So let's start with the countries kind of in good shape. So Saudi Arabia and the UAE um, are going to have, we think, a little over 2 million barrels a day of the total group spare capacity. So they've they've got well over half of the total, but their quotas are only going to increase um, between them by about 1.3 million barrels a day. So they're not going to get to bring all of that online. Um, we do assume that Saudi production goes all the way up to 10.6 million barrels a day on average next year and hits the 11 million barrel a day level uh, at points next year, late next year, uh, which is, is not quite unprecedented, but is really noteworthy. But that means all of the other countries, the other 21 countries, because I do exclude Mexico here, as you said, it's weird, they're still uh, turning up to these meetings, but um, they're not covered by quota, they've opted out of the quotas, but um, they certainly don't have spare capacity. But all the other countries are really uh, in differing types of difficult, difficult situation. Some of them have already run out spare capacity today, some of them will have run out by the start of next year, and all of the rest pretty much in different ways are, are set to run out over the course of next year. I think, you know, Kuwait, sorry, go on. No, no, I was just going to say that, I mean, the point you mentioned about Saudi, yes, of course, it's not unprecedented, but I think it is worth highlighting that 10.6 is pretty much at par or slightly higher than the record level Saudi Arabia has ever produced on an annual average basis. That's no mean feat. And yes, on paper, they could do a little bit more. Of course, quotas won't allow them to under the current deal. But that in itself is huge. And again, UAE, yes, they always talk about being able to do more. These are going to be record levels of production for some of these key countries. And again, it boils down to the fact that we're going to really test their system. I think that shouldn't be underestimated as well. It's not just about the fact that, you know, this is how much they have on paper. But yes, I mean, continue with, uh, you were talking about Kuwait. And and just to say, you know, they, they can do this and we expect because of our price forecasts and our overall balances, they will. But they're not going to do these production levels regardless. So if, if market conditions weaken, the deal does have a mechanism to pause for up to three months. They might slow the pace. They might not fully use these quotering these quota levels, certainly in terms of Saudi Arabia. So people need to watch this and understand how they're actually going to act, not just uh, how they can act in terms of spare capacity or what the deal says in terms of their quota. So it's, it's pretty nuanced and it's important to keep watching this closely. But Kuwait, I pick out because it's, it's, it's the third of those GCC producers. It is one that we had, uh, had previously assumed had quite healthy levels of spare capacity in part because of the return of the neutral zone. But then we had this report from the Kuwait oil company, its annual report published a couple of weeks ago where it, signaled and the Kuwait oil company handles all domestic production apart from the neutral zone. And it signaled that by March, uh, the end of March 2021, 
productive capacity had dropped by about 200,000 barrels a day from a year previously, and this extended a run of drops. Now, that led us to re reduce our forecast for spare production capacity and spare capacity in Kuwait by about 200,000 barrels a day. We still think it's got enough to fully use its quota, but it's no longer in that group of extra spare capacity uh, or the ability to offset. And that leaves, you know, that becomes a very select group, which is really just Saudi Arabia and the UAE. You've got yeah, because the then at the other end. Making actually, sorry, uh, the point you're making, Rich, is that uh, that's actually a very important one, because let's move beyond 22. Let's say the deal ends, whether it's in September or they have to pause for three months and then it's December 2022. This extra spare capacity over and above the deal or, or what's allowed is going to be the only thing available for the market in 2023 onwards. So therefore, you are only talking about UAE and Saudi Arabia over here. Kuwait doesn't feature in the picture. And I think in a way, and given we're talking about a futures market, the futures market will always discount what's going to happen uh, further forward. You're probably going to get some of these worries about real tightness, which should only really manifest itself back half of 22 into 23. You'll probably see that in the prices earlier as well. And yes, I mean, if we go through some of the other key countries, I think the picture is going to be even more dire. Absolutely. So, you know, people talk a lot about Angola and Nigeria. We share the view, you know, Angola has long ago maxed out its productive capacity. There's no, uh, you know, there's no relief coming there. Nigeria, we we think it's it's clearly struggling in actual production terms. It's falling further behind its um, its quota. Some of that is potentially temporary issues, but when you have a run of temporary force majeure after temporary technical problem, it starts to become structural. So so don't expect a lot more from Nigeria. Um, I think the two last countries I'd pick out that are worth watching Russia and Iraq. You know, Russia has been drilling uh, quite a lot over the summer. Rates seem to slow a little bit uh, September and will fall as they usually do because of the, the weather in the winter. Um, we do think Russia is adding a bit of productive capacity, but it's a long way short of what it would need to fully utilize the quota it's going to have gradually rising over next year. So by September next year, it's going to have an 11 million barrel a day quota for crude only. And we think actual production is going to fall well below that level. Iraq, um, you know, Iraq is perhaps the dark horse here in terms of, you know, our numbers and what it's done in the past would suggest that it can just about or it can do almost all of its quota increases. It does have some production that's uh, blocked offline because of longstanding political issues between the Kurdish uh, regional government and the, uh, the federal government in Baghdad. But the bit that we haven't really tested in the last few years, we've seen a lot of the IOCs moving out of the projects they had in southern Iraq, cutting back on investment, long-standing uh, disputes with Baghdad. And those fields a lot that are now controlled by national oil company uh, or national oil company subsidiaries reduced production very sharply in, uh, in 2020 to respond to the pandemic. We're going to be testing how well and how quickly they can really bring produ production back online. We saw Iraq stutter earlier in this year, only to add quite quite substantial amounts over the summer. I think it's going to be tested again over the first half of next year. Our balances assume it can deliver. If that turns out not to be true, then we've got uh, we've got more tightness and we've got more challenge 
even sooner than we're anticipating. And I think this is, in a way, what Prince Abdulaziz was almost trying to signal at the press conference, saying, again, even for OPEC+, plus, right, it's not just non-OPEC countries, there needs to be a signal to invest. I mean, we've seen that across the board. There is no investment going in. And I think consumer countries do need to realize that they can't expect Saudi Arabia or OPEC+, plus as a whole, to continue cushioning consumer nations from the volatility of prices, vagaries of energy transition, um, by investing and deploying spare capacity when they need it, uh, without the consumer countries also cushioning producers from the same vagaries of energy transition, um, in basically saying, okay, we will also let, I mean, let's talk about the consumption side, right? Like they will have to guarantee some form of demand in the future for these uh, producers to invest. And I think this lack of investment that cuts through not just uh, non-OPEC countries, but OPEC countries uh, as well is a real risk for massive price spikes next year, especially given how low inventories are right now. Uh, and it leaves the market very, very vulnerable uh, to shocks. And, you know, I mean, we can we can probably uh, end it uh, with the, with just a final thoughts on this is that we haven't even mentioned Libya or, you know, of course, uh, there's always some outages in Nigeria. And the fact that, I mean, the only real source of oil that could really come back to the market next year is going to be Iran. And that looks less and less likely. So there are all those risks and you know, if and if they kind of play out and imagine if there are outages there um where is the buffer and the, there just isn't any but yes uh, where do we stand on that rich absolutely i mean you know first thing to say is opec plus is going to be meet, continue meeting every month i don't expect every month to include quite such uh, extended commentaries and responses or i, I almost hope not um hope if the market if the market really does, you know, tighten and change, then the group can discuss amending its deal. But that's not an easy process. It needs unanimity. They're really emphasizing this point that it's about consensus. And there are various issues beneath the surface. They weren't on show this time around. But if you reopened the terms of the agreement, different countries might come forward with various demands and axes to grind. So there's certainly a reluctance to do that unless the market really needs it. But uh, you you raised and you you know you picked quite a, a couple of issues uh, in the geopolitical sphere that could force OPEC plus to reconsider. So Libya is coming towards a contested election deadline in late December. We're already seeing a bit of an uptick in protests and small disruptions, but there's a bigger political movement um, and and a lot of positioning about whether that election goes ahead and who is going to come out on top. Now, over the medium term, you know, your your best case scenario is that an election is held, it's acknowledged and accepted by all sides, and maybe over a few years, Libya becomes a bit more uh, politically stable, welcoming to investment, but that's not going to deliver, you know, production gains next year compared to this year, where we've run pretty well at 1.1, 1.2 million barrels a day most of the year. So I think there's more downside than upside, certainly on Libya. And on Iran, yes, talks are finally set to resume at the very end of November. But this is a different Iranian government. It's taking a more hardline position. The US has also cooled a lot on how much uh, a quick deal, a straightforward deal could achieve. So I think the, the negotiators are going to have a long, tough road to, to walk to get to any form of agreement. And that means Iranian supplies are unlikely to be coming back 
um, until late 2022 at the very earliest. And there's plenty of risk that deadline, that timeline extends or they just don't come back. And again, our balances assume by the end of next year, Iran is ramping up and is coming back. And we still see a very tight market. If Iran remains under sanctions, then not only OPEC plus, but the whole market has some really tough questions to answer. Yes, so I mean, really, um, all all signs do point to much tighter and uh, tighter markets next year and higher prices. Look, in the short term, we can get some volatility because of expected SPR releases. But I really do want to stress the point that SPR releases are very short-term mechanisms. Last time during 2011, when there was an SPR release, oil prices went down for four days. Four days, that was it. And within 10 days, we were trading back up above where we were before the SPR release. Because ultimately, SPR is a stock of oil that's being run down. It's not a flow. When you have such tight markets, you need a consistent flow of oil that's coming out. Um, yes, there could be some kind of downside pressure now, but really we are looking at much, much tighter markets given what we've just discussed on spare capacity. And with that, we'll bring this podcast to an end. Uh, I hope you've uh, enjoyed listening to this and please do continue to engage with us on, of course, all topics, but uh, OPEC plus and spare capacity in particular. It's a topic we do a lot of work on uh, and we continue to hope that you, know, you, you enjoy our coverage on that. So thank you.